For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast about communicating effectively in difficult situations, both professional and personal. I'm Leonard S. Greenberger. Our guest today is David Ropik, an international consultant, author, teacher, and speaker on the issues of risk perception and risk communication. In part two of the episode entitled The Only Thing We Have to Fear, we'll learn how David became interested in how risk, fear, and effective communication go together and talk to him about what he calls the perception gap and how that gap can change the way we need to communicate in difficult situations. And finally, we'll discuss how the perception gap can help explain why some of us are so eager to get back to normal and why others are staying quarantined at this point in the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you enjoy the interview, and stay tuned afterwards for a new What to Say When Things Get Tough feature. David, thank you so much for agreeing to be here with us today. Hope you're staying safe and your family as well. Thank you. We are, and you too. In getting ready for this uh, discussion, of course, I did a little research about you, and I discovered that we are fellow Medildos, I, uh, <laughs> which I should, should explain to listeners as a, a way that people who've uh, attended Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism often heard of themselves. With uh, appropriate self-derision. Exactly, exactly. So what brought you to a, a career in journalism or, and to the doorstep of Medill? My father was a journalist before me and uh, managing editor of a newspaper in New Jersey. Before that, the business editor of newspapers in New York City. He would take me to work on the weekends. I would see the line of type machines. I just fell in love with the whole thing of it. And then I loved writing, was okay at it in high school. And he introduced me to the idea of journalism as a calling. Really is writing the first draft of history and has an important place in society. And that seemed like a real neat combination of all sorts of things to do and get paid for. A similar story. My father was in the newspaper advertising business for many years. And when I was casting around after graduating from college, looking for something to do, uh, my family was encouraging me to be an attorney. And I knew I didn't want to do that. And uh, I had taken some communications courses and a journalism course in undergrad, and I really enjoyed that. So I, that, that's what got me launched on, on my journey. You know, to me, writing is uh, it's at the center of everything. No matter what you do, it, it starts with words on a page. And, and on top of that, to me, journalism is, was, is still, I even retired, still kind of do it, um, 
it, it's a really intellectually engaging thing if you do it really wanting to do it well because you're effectively you're paid to learn and then to intellectually synthesize it down to where what can be communicated will take what you've learned in a short version and bring it to a lot of other people. So beyond that, it has this public service value. Um, you get paid to learn. On top of which, your press pass gives you access to a whole bunch of worlds that regular people don't have. I mean, in the course of my career, I interviewed presidents one-on-one -on -one and mothers who were grieving for their dead children and traveled the world and and plus I'm contributing to society. I mean, it was really wonderful, really wonderful. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting career and you can go a lot of different ways. At what time did you begin to develop an interest in, in our particular topic today, the field of risk communication and communicating effectively in difficult situations? I ended up specializing out of an interest in the stories uh, in environmental sorts of stories just because they weren't being covered and I didn't want to save the earth, although I do as a person, but as a journalist, they were just really interesting and uncovered stories. And it got me out in the woods and out in the ocean as opposed to in, in the state house or, you know, in the, in the cop shop. And I started noticing pretty consistently that people were more afraid of many things than the experts said they really needed to be. Uh, radiation and chemicals and, you know, the whole environmental field is full of issues where there is real risk, but the fear exceeds what the real risk is, at least according to the experts I would talk to. So then I started to recognize, since I was a general assignment reporter and covering other things as well, that the same phenomenon was happening with other stories too, mm -hmm. that I would do a story about um, a crime wave and people would say they were afraid of going into Boston when the crime wave was in two blocks and it was a gang war or people were afraid of uh, child safety seats that were new at the time, and they were saving lives right and left, but on occasion, a mother would strap her kid into the child safety seat in the front seat facing the airbag, and it would kill her. So this phenomenon of people's fears not matching the facts was so pervasive across all the stories I was covering that I, I just noticed it as a phenomenon and thought, wow, I bet you psychologists have studied this. Mm -hmm. And I researched it and looked it up way back when, when there, you had to go to libraries to do that. And in fact, it had been studied. And there was all of this literature that explained all of these news stories. Why people felt this way about chemicals or that way about uh, drunk driving. Uh, um, and so I started doing stories about it. Stories about the psychology explaining the stories that I was doing. And so then when TV news got to be kind of shallow and not really substantive anymore, and I decided to switch gears, an opportunity was presented at the Harvard School of Public Health to work with a center that studied risk, but quantitatively, you know, big population-wide numbers and cost-benefit analysis, all of which makes complete sense at the population level. But at the human level, that's not how we do risk perception. We perceive risk through our feelings. So I said to them, I'd love to take this job, but can I also teach this other stuff? And off I went into the world of risk perception used as a tool for better risk communication. And it sounds to me like you're describing the path that your career followed, but also we're getting to begin to define what you have labeled the perception gap. Tell me a little bit about the perception gap. What, what does that mean? How do, how do you define it? 
So I thought as I, as I was doing this research, and by the way, my research was only research into what researchers had found out. I was not the principal right. first person, right? It was Paul Slovic and Baruch Fishoff and Melissa Finucane and Ed Flynn and a whole bunch of other academics. Right. And then even more broadly into the cognitive studies of Daniel Kahneman and, and lots of people about how our, our thinking isn't perfectly rational. It occurred to me that it was important for the public to know this, that we get risk wrong. And it's not our fault, and it's not because we're stupid or irrational, as a lot of people like to say. It's because we use the tools that evolution has given us to figure things out, and sometimes they lead us to be more afraid than we need to be, and sometimes they lead us to be less afraid than we ought to be. And in both of those cases, the gap, the risk perception gap, I gave it a name so that it would kind of be a, a concept people get their heads around, can be dangerous. Right? So I'll give you an example at the moment. We're afraid of COVID-19, and we should be. Um, and you bet if there's a vaccine, people will be lining up for it. Meanwhile, there's only 40% of us who's supposed to get a regular flu shot do. And in a bad year, the regular flu kills 70,000 Americans. But we don't because we're familiar with it, and the anti-vax movement has us kind of worried about vaccines and some things that don't match the evidence. So there's a we're not worried enough example of the perception gap that gets us into trouble. That's the risk perception gap. When our fears don't match the facts and what results are judgments and choices that are by themselves bad for our health. That's the idea of it. I wanna talk eventually about coronavirus and some of the things, the way we respond, are responding to the threat that it poses, the risk, and whether or not some of those responses are putting us at greater risk of injury or death or illness in, in other ways. But before we move on to that, you mentioned familiarity as what I like to call a risk influencer. So we tend to judge risks through a series of filters, if you will. Familiarity is one of them. Uh, another is trust. Do we trust the source of the risk that's being the person or thing that's imposing the risk on us? If we trust that person, we tend to be more accepting of the risk. Can you talk a little bit more about what some of those filters are, what some of the more powerful ones are, and again, how, why and how those influence our perception of risk? So when we were evolving, we didn't have Google and we didn't have science, and we had to make decisions pretty quickly about whether something was dangerous. So we developed a cognitive system that looks for little hints, clues, first indications. And those are more feelings than fully informed, right? By definition. So think of the, the common version is if you see a snake at your feet and before you even are conscious that it's a snake, your body says, oh, curvy line, jump back. Right? So we developed that sort of a system. We still use it. We being everybody. There are factors or influencers, as you termed them, that Paul Slovic and Baruch Fischoff and the other researchers have identified that tend to make risks feel more or less scary. So here are several of them that are really critical. You mentioned a couple, I'll mention a few more. We are much more afraid of any risk situation if we don't feel like we have control. Control is the ability to keep ourselves safe. If you don't feel that, 
obviously you're going to be more afraid. The classic example is you're driving in a car, you're driving a long distance, you have someone next to you in the passenger seat, you get a little sleepy, you say to the person next to you, can we switch? She says yes, you switch, she's driving, you're in the passenger seat and you don't go right to sleep because you no longer have the steering wheel in your hands. The brake lights in front of you look closer, etc. That's your brain saying you're more afraid because you have less control. By the way, a lack of control leads us to do things to give ourselves a sense of control. And with coronavirus, for example, that's buying toilet paper. It's also buying guns. Toilet paper won't hurt you. An accident with a gun might. Right? So control is one. Another really big one is we tend to think that risks that are human-made are scarier or more dangerous than risks that are natural. So we're made of chemicals and food is made of chemicals and food has chemicals in it that too much of will kill us. Apple seeds, too many apple seeds will kill you. Meanwhile, one man-made aspirin won't. But we generally tend to look at risks through the lens of, is it natural? That's less scary. If it's man-made, it's more scary. Genetically modified food, radiation from the sun is okay. Radiation from a nuclear power plant is not, et cetera. So that's, that's another one. Um, is a risk new? We, we talked about familiar. Let's talk about the other side. A risk that first comes along, like coronavirus, um, or many of the other new flus that came along, right? SARS was new, and then Ebola was kind of new, and then West Nile virus was new. And the newness of it means we don't know everything we need to know about it to keep ourselves safe. And now we're back to a lack of control. So newness brings on that feeling. I don't know how to protect myself in this uncertainty. I don't have control. Newness is scary. Ergo, familiarity is less scary, and now that's influenza. Risk versus benefit is a huge one. So we do all sorts of risky things all the time. Um, we drive drunk sometimes, or let's be more kind, we drive using our mobile phones. Right. And even if we're talking to the dashboard, we know that cognitively that's distracting our brain. Uh, these these um, hands-free laws do nothing. They've been shown statistically, in fact, to slightly increase accident rates because we think we're safer, because we think we have control, because we think we've done something, but our brain is still distracted talking on the phone. So, but we tend to do it even though we know it's risky because we want to. We want to. Or we you have to. to. Yeah, or you have to, but there's a benefit. That's the language in the research. It's, we if there's a benefit to the activity, we tend to play down the commensurate risk so that we could do what we want to do. There's a risk to bungee jumping. <laughs> you play down the risk of bungee jumping so you can do the thing, right? Unprotected sex and drunk driving and so forth. So risk versus benefit is a huge one. And now with coronavirus, to use that example, the benefit of getting back to our normal lives is starting to outweigh the benefit of staying home and being safe. Risk versus benefit is another one. Trust is important, and I wanted to build on what you said. If we trust the source of the risk, the company that made the product, Apple makes cell phones. A study came out saying cell phone radiation may be bad for you, but we love our cell phones, we get a benefit, and we trust Apple, so we slap them to our ear, no problem. And by the way, that risk isn't there. We will be less afraid. If we don't trust them, if the risk came from Monsanto and it was a plant that would resist drought and flood and feed the world and not do any harm, doesn't matter. We don't trust who it came from. It's also man-made. See, they overlap. But in addition to that, when we feel afraid, 
Trust matters for who's supposed to protect us. So at a time of crisis like coronavirus, we automatically set aside our general mistrust of officials, government, and defer to them at times of, you know, uh, 911, the 911 attack and big crises. We look to government to protect us from what we can't protect ourselves from as individuals. That's what government's for, among other things. But if over time we don't trust the people who are doing that protecting, our fear goes up. So when we hear a president talk about himself and his own feelings when asked, what would you say to Americans who are afraid? That, unless you're you know, a true believer um, in that kind of tribe, and that tribal loyalty is what really drives all of how you see the world, you will trust less, and that's what most of the surveys say. Whereas we trust the governors more, and we trust our mayors more, and we're doing the kinds of things they're asking us to do because we trust them. That's trust in who's supposed to protect us, not just who's making the risk. There are a lot of these other risk influencers, and I'll mention just a couple that are relevant. We're much more sensitive to risk to kids than to risk to adults. So we have lots of laws like Amber Alerts and you know, child abduction scares us and mass shootings don't scare us as much when they're in someplace else besides when they're in a school. So risk to kids is one. A choice is an interesting one. It's kind of like control, but it has to do with, do I engage in this voluntarily or am I being made to? So when we're driving down the road, talking on the cell phone, we're doing it voluntarily. We get a benefit. We think we have control, uh, all of that. Then over there next to us, there's somebody driving badly on his or her cell phone, clearly talking, and that pisses us off. <laughs> Wait a minute. We're doing the same thing. It's the being done to, the involuntary, the being forced to. This is, for example, why we, want, we say um, we want genetically modified food content labeled. Labeling gives us choice. Choice feels better. And, of course, that's all a scam by the people who are against that technology because they think that technology will scare people away from buying it. But they're invoking the appeal of, it feels less risky if we can choose for ourselves. That's a long list and the list goes on and I could go all morning, but that, that, I think that gives listeners a, an idea of this literature of these filters that we use to gauge how scary things are or not. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think it's important too to recognize that all of this that's going on as our brains are turning and, and using these influencers uh, to judge a risk, much of that is unconscious. We don't know these terms and think of them as we're assessing risk. Is that correct? That's it's, absolutely right. Not only is it subconscious, but a lot of it is pre-conscious, by which I mean we will judge whether that curvy line on the ground is a stick or a snake before the visual information has even gotten to the back part of the brain that turns it into our conscious awareness of it, whatever it is. We're jumping back before we're consciously aware of it. Our expression of emotion, all emotions, love, hate, fear, are after the fact, post hoc, conscious reactions to what our biology has already set in motion to keep us safe, and then our brain becomes aware that, hey, my heart is beating and my stomach feels this way. And I identify that with, oh, God, I'm afraid. And that's what comes out. So a lot of this stuff, a lot of this stuff, you make a very important point, is subconscious, pre-conscious. And what that means, and this is really key to this conversation, is it's not under our control. We don't use these things as conscious, purposeful tools. Not being aware of them, they just kind of rule the day. 
we are still mostly animals. We're not this brilliant cognitive thinking thing. Ambrose Bierce said in the Devil's Dictionary uh, in the early 1900s, the brain is only the organ with which we think we think. <laughs> mostly it's helping us survive during the day and risk perception is part of that. And as we go down the list of factors that you mentioned, control, familiarity, man-made being scarier than natural, uh, although that one, I'm not sure how that plays when it comes to coronavirus, because it is natural, but at the same time, it may have been a wet market in China where it emerged. Some people think that it was some, you know, deliberately created uh, in a lab in China. But isn't it interesting that the people who are trying to make it more sinister do so by trying to frame it as a man-made thing? Right. right. And the people who are afraid of vaccines are afraid of not only being forced to inject something into our body, the libertarian kind of argument, that's voluntary versus imposed. Right. But they're afraid of man-made drugs. Of course, most vaccines are simply biologically based, man-made versions of biologically based things that will work in us. But it's the man-made of the vaccines that scares a lot of people away from it. So not all of these factors pertain to every risk equally, but you can see them in a lot of them. Sorry, I interrupted. Well, that's all right. I was just thinking as you go through the list that you gave us, does it affect kids? Do you have a choice? And, and again, thinking about coronavirus, every one of them seems to work against, that may not be the right word, but again, against the virus in terms of how afraid we are. It makes us more afraid of this virus. Uh, which of course, in this case, is something we should be afraid of and should take steps to mitigate, to try to limit our exposure uh, and others' exposure. So I just, I wanted to pull that all together and say, now you, you can understand why people are so afraid of this when you think through the factors we use as human beings to judge whether something is risky or not. We've talked before and we get into later why that system sometimes goes haywire and leads us to be afraid of things we should not necessarily need to be and, and vice versa. But in this case, coronavirus is something we need to be worried about and take steps to mitigate against. And this is another very important point. I'm glad you brought it up. Fear is good. <laughs> Fear works. Fear has gotten us this far down evolution's gantlet. It protects us. Our system being based on emotions that sometimes conflict with evidence can lead us astray. We'll talk about them, I guess. But mostly it protects us. It's a tool to get to tomorrow. Thank you, fear. It's not like it's all bad. And by the way, the word fear is loaded too. Fear invokes ideas of panic and running amok and the zombies are running down the street. That's not what we're doing. We're being precautionary. We're being, use the word worried, anxious, concerned, you know, they're all the same. It's not um, blind, ah, oh my God, the sky is falling chicken little, usually, right? It's some degree of that, and that's the biological process, but it, it, it works <laughs> mostly, except for sometimes. <laughs> well, I'd like to pursue two different avenues here. So we've established that coronavirus uh, is something to fear. Uh, that in this case, our minds, our bodies, uh, system for recognizing fear and, and influencing us to act is, is right on target. When we react to one fear, even if it's an appropriate reaction, we potentially put ourselves at risk from something else. And I wanted to talk a little bit about 
whether or not that's going on here. And let me use an example. Home is one of the most dangerous places you can be, which is surprising to a lot of people. Slips and falls, poisonings, uh, those kinds of things are relatively common risks. We're now spending a lot more time at home. What do we need to do to make sure that we are balancing the risks and our reactions appropriately? That's a really tough challenge. You're absolutely right to point out that there are unintended consequences of every choice that we make, every choice, risk or not, how we invest money and who we marry. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But with risk, some of the unintended consequences are secondary risks or tertiary risks. Let me give you a couple other quick examples with coronavirus just to build on this point. I have friends who are afraid to answer their door. I have friends who will not come over to my house and sit on our back porch with six feet in between us with masks on. I have friends who will not go shopping. I mean, they don't come outside. That fear is understandable, excessive based on my understanding of public health recommendations. There are reasonable things that we can be doing and has consequences. And it has two consequences. The first one is we're social animals. We need physical social contact, even literally touch. But seeing each other, Zoom doesn't cut it. Without that, there is ample, ample, ample evidence that our blood pressure goes up, our immune system goes down. That's what anxiety does. It's like when we're we're fighting off the lion, it's like a fight or flight response. We don't have to worry about germs then. So we we suppress our immune system so it doesn't take up energy. But our 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 heart rate goes up, our blood pressure rises. So the people who are that anxious, are increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease by that anxiety. And they're also increasing their susceptibility to all sorts of infectious diseases, not only getting them, but suffering worse from them. There are other effects from chronic anxiety, uh, serious ones. It increases the likelihood and severity of clinical depression. It increases the onset of type 2 adult diabetes because it's uh, screwing around with our blood sugar. So chronic stress such as we are experiencing now, is really bad for our health. And more of it than we need (laughs) is harmful without it doing us any good. Uh, There's the risk perception gap. That's one. The other one is chronic worry like that makes us stupid. Uh, Stupid is a bold word, but it turns down the thinking part of our brain's influence in the conversation over how we see the world. We get kind of all animal. if if you want to think of it simplistically that way. So all the choices we make are less intelligent, less informed, less rational or reasonable, and therefore less optimal. But the question you asked is a challenge. You're asked, how do we overcome that? One thing for you and I to talk about, this risk exists, but if it's all subconscious and pre-conscious and we're all animals driven by this stuff, how do we overcome it? Well, in my opinion, and at the opinion of a lot of other researchers, actual researchers in this field, you overcome it by being aware of that being a risk, of being aware of how your emotions can be bad for you, being aware of how fear may feel right, but be wrong. Like you're aware of, um, you know, if, you, if, if gun owners buy a gun, but they have to take a safety course so that they learn what's safe and what's not. They learn. They learn. They don't just pick it up and go, now I know what to do. That's just one example. If I know, and I do, 
that my worries may exceed the actual risk or be below the actual risk because of this language of emotion. And that may lead me to choices that feel right but aren't safe for me. I have taken the first step towards literally putting on the seatbelt to protect myself against that risk because now I'm aware of it. And then the other trick is this, and here's the easy way to, uh, and it's really easy to start down this path of thinking about things a little more carefully. Stop. Literally, literally pause. Whenever you're reacting to a risk, anytime, snake on the ground, gun, COVID, whatever, pause. Two seconds, five seconds, a minute, whatever. Whoa, wait, wait. Step back outside the animal automatic instinct and give your thinking brain a louder voice in the conversation. We tend to react first with emotions. They're easier, they're faster, they take less mental energy and effort. Our brain is kind of lazy. It likes to not have to think about stuff. We don't look stuff up. We go with whatever our friends tell us. Pause, don't do that. Because now you're going, first you're going mostly with emotions. But if you pause, then our thinking brain can have a little bit more of a say. And into that brain can come the thought, whoa, if I don't think this through, I may make a choice that feels right, but isn't. Just make a habit of pausing as you're thinking about any risk at all, just for a moment, literally to be aware of not letting your knee-jerk reaction be the reaction so that your thinking brain has more ability to help you out. I think that's good advice when you're communicating in any difficult situation. And of course, as we focus on coronavirus today, and why not? I mean, that's, the, that's what's going on in our world uh, and has been for a while. I think about people who are having to communicate in difficult situations that perhaps they've never had to before. For example, being at home with your family, with your friends, with relatives, uh, perhaps with people you don't haven't spent as much time with in the past. And let's face it, people get on each other's nerves. They're, you know, we can't go out. We can't get away from each other. We, we have neighbors and things. And I, I think that's very good advice for people in terms of communicating these situations is really just take a step back or, or, or count to 10 or do something that will keep you from reacting sort of out of instinct and, and perhaps saying or doing something that is just counterproductive and is, is going to make the situation worse. And, and, you know, you're talking about human interaction as an example of this is a perfect, perfect way of pointing out how hard it is to do this. Right. We've all been in those conversations where they're getting heated and we just go, man, we just go right? Because of all of the emotions that are involved in whatever the heated nature of the conversation are. And then later we see, oops, that was a oops. <laughs> we should have stopped. We should have thought. So it's a perfect demonstration of, we all have this in our experience about how our, our subjective emotions take over our reasoning and get us into trouble. But there's also a teaching moment in that example in that the other thing that we need to do when we're interacting with people when things get heated that make things go better or worse is to respect the other person's point of view. Uh, empathize with it. Give it space. Not agree with it necessarily, right? If you're a company trying to communicate to people about 
their excessive fear about your product or you're a husband or wife talking to your spouse about a choice that the families make. Same thing. See it from the other person's point of view. Put yourself in their shoes, literally, emotionally, honestly. Feel about it the way they feel. And then you can be more empathetic as you make your case. You're making your case. The company's selling its tuna fish. I want to get a puppy and my wife doesn't, whatever. But the whole interaction is going to be less contentious. The whole interaction is going to trigger less defensive, protective, emotional responses. So if you can pause, and if you have the strength as a person or as a, a leader of an organization or a communicator for an organization, the ability to understand that what you're trying to manage here is the relationship. You're trying to manage a relationship so that it goes your way. That's the outcome, goes your way. But to go your way, it's manage the relationship. It's not pick the right word. It's not wear the right clothes. It's not like, you know, do an on-camera preparatory session so that you can not fold your arms and things. It's be empathetic, mm -hmm. legitimately empathetic. That then allows you to not only pause, but then to communicate in ways that are less um, triggering and more trust building. We talked about trust before. So if I hear you talking to me about something that I disagree with, but I hear you taking my point of view into account, I trust you more or mistrust you less, and you'll have more influence on me. Right now, to, to go back to the COVID example, we hear some officials like the president talking selfishly, okay, setting the politics aside, he's clearly doing that, right? And we hear a lot of officials talking really empathetically, governors and mayors. I think the, the leading example of this that I've seen is the um, director of public health for the state of Ohio, Dr. Amy Acton, A-C-T-O-N, look her up. Super empathetic risk communication. It's called risk communication, but that's broadly what we're talking about, right? It's all about us being in it together and being heroes and helping each other. And I know this is hard and I feel it too, and I, I get all emotional, and her language is legitimately from the heart, not manipulatively falsely, empathetic. So not only has there been the pause to not just go with instinctive gut reaction, there's been a legitimate, from the heart effort to be in the other person's shoes. There are people in Ohio running around with Amy Acton t-shirts on, <laughs> quoting her, and little kids <laughs> want to grow up and be like her, you know, and it's just an amazing example of how the legitimacy of empathy builds trust, which increases influence in otherwise contentious communication circumstances. And I think you've summarized it very well. That's really the bottom line, and it applies in, in all of the circumstances that we've brought up here today. You were just mentioning public officials, elected officials, leaders who are trying to communicate with citizens and explain to them what it is we need to do and convince them that it's the right thing to do. That's, that's the point. It's to have the influence on what you're trying to get them to do. So you're trying to get them to do something. So whether it's a company and you want them to buy your product or an official and wants people to stay home, you want something to happen. As Baruch Fischoff said when he was the head of a risk communication subcommittee for the FDA, yes, risk communication is literally trying to get people to do something about risk. Let's not 
let's not be all liberal and say, no, we're not trying to influence people's choices. We are. It's up to them to choose, though. We don't want to completely fool and lie them. That's the, you know, a lot of companies want to do that. A lot of politicians want to do that. But people are pretty adept at smelling out a rat. And if mistrust goes up, your ability to be influential and get them to do what you want them to do is going down. So if the goal is to get them to want to do something, the way to do that isn't direct. It's build trust with empathy for their feelings, the feelings factors we talked about, so that they'll mistrust you less or trust you more. And then your what you want them to do will have more influence on them. Unfortunately, in my experience as a communications advisor, I found um, most clients didn't get that. Most clients wanted the fancy words to make them buy the product or stop being a pain in the ass or you know, make a controversy go away. And most clients didn't want to give up the power, that was the key, over the situation. Being empathetic is hard for a CEO toward people who are a pain in the ass to him or her. Being empathetic is hard to a politician with people who want to vote against her or him. It's the best way to get them to vote for you or to buy your product, but it's giving up power. It's giving up control. It's feeling like weakness. And I, I found most of my clients didn't like this advice. Some took it. It worked in some cases, didn't work in other cases. There were a lot of unique circumstances. So it's easy to offer this advice to regular folks. I found it was harder to offer it to people who were all lawyered up and, you know, quarterly profit measures up and I want to get reelected and you're focused because there's a lot of power that makes them forget the basics of effective human interaction. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, I, I like to say to them sometimes, this is like straight out of what, I, what I'm advising is everything I needed to know in life I learned in kindergarten like that book said, basic human interactions. And then we put on a suit and tie and forget it. Oops, at our peril, at our loss, at our cost. Well, that whole idea of power I, would be a terrific subject for another podcast. <laughs> yep. I've, I've made notes and I'll, I'll keep that in mind. We've, uh, we're, we're coming here towards the end of our time. I wanted to also point out, I started off by saying that we were uh, fellow Medill graduates. We also happen to be publishing brothers and that McGaw-Hill published both of our books, ah. uh, including yours, which is a terrific one called How Risky Is It Really? And I've now read it twice because I read it a long time ago and then again before this interview. And uh, I think it's still available probably on Amazon. Yeah, it's still out there. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. actually going pretty well right now because it's kind of germane. Very topical. Yeah. Well, I encourage people to go out and find it. What's yours? Tell me about your book. Mine is called What to Say When Things Get Tough. Oh. It's communication strategies for winning people over when they're angry, worried, and suspicious of everything you say. <laughs> Sounds like what we've been talking about, eh? Yeah, very, very similar. Yeah, we, we, I'm glad we've come together because we've led right. sort of parallel career paths here. Thank you. One, uh, the, the way I like to end these, uh, as a lot of other podcasts do, I, I call mine Speaker's Corner. It's an opportunity for myself and my guests to say anything that is on their mind. It could be relevant to this, uh, this topic. It could be something else you're thinking about that you'd like to share with people. There, there are two big thoughts. One is we live in this really divided world these days, angry at each other world. But if you really look around past all of the, uh, the tribalisms, 
uh, you know, even with COVID and how we're reacting to that, do we open up or not and so forth, you know, the media tend to play up that aspect of things. But most people, 80, 90% around the world actually, are saying, no, 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 I'm willing to stay home to help keep myself and my community safe. At times like this, the tribe that matters is we're humans, all together the same. That social altruism is a really wonderful thing to celebrate. It's the zillion examples of, you know, all the people doing art online, you know, and the concerts online or driving past somebody's house for a birthday party or, you know, making masks or a zillion things. The basic one is I'm willing to give up sacrifice, the freedom in my life in the name of the greater common good. And that's a great survival instinct, by the way, because a world that works that way is going to protect me too. But it's something to celebrate. It's something to not lose sight of in the screamathon of the media, which by which we hear most of the world. So we hear these protests with guys with guns and stuff and that want to open up. That's 600 people. Meanwhile, most Americans are perfectly willing to stay home. So let's remember the example of this social altruism because we have climate change to face and we have other joint things that together we're going to have to face. The insolvency of social security in America, other things like that. And this all in it together, the very foundational idea of America itself out of many one, e pluribus unum, is showing itself and it's wonderful and we should celebrate that. The flip side of which, however, is we're, the world is in a worried place. The world. This is unprecedented in, in modern human history, as I can think about it. Uh, I, I can't remember a time when everybody on the planet was all worried about the same thing at the same time in a, in a visceral, it could happen to me way. There have been other global risks, nuclear war and global climate change and stuff, but we didn't really think day to day that could happen to me. This does. So we're in this worried place. We're in this fight or flight response. We're in this anxious, you know, stress hormones making us look at the world in a narrower, more negative, less thoughtful way. And that can be a poison. It is a poison. It's a poison to our seeing the world, making choices about the world and our own lives um, in an open-minded way. We're kind of on risk alert down here. We tend to give, at times like that, the negative, the threatening, more weight than it deserves. Those protests that I was referring to, for example, we tend more readily to forget that it was 600 pissed off bandana wearing MAGA hat wearers and not the common good. We're in a really negative place in the world. Have been for a while, this is exacerbating it. And I say that as a, as a closing point to challenge us. I try to challenge myself and my freaked out friends and stuff. There's, there's plenty of regular life and good around too and let's not lose sight of that fact while we're in this kind of bunker mentality those are two broad points that i'd love to close with if i can and thank you for the moment and david thank you for taking this time from your bunker <laughs> yeah thanks to for mine yeah hope and, it was helpful absolutely and i hope i'll be able to invite you back for a future episode and maybe we can talk about something other than coronavirus at that point well it'd be more fun what I like to think of as an eclectic taste in music. And one of my favorite games is to throw out a word and list as many songs that include that word in their titles or lyrics. Just a few weeks ago, I created a 90-minute playlist based on the word fire, 
when my girlfriend and I visited her sister's house for a bonfire. So I thought it would be fun for me, and maybe for you, to provide a few relevant songs at the end of each episode. Think of them as music to accompany that fabulous What to Say When Things Get Tough podcast. Given the topic of our first two episodes, here are three recommended songs that contain the word and or are about fear. Not Afraid by Eminem. I Won't Back Down by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And Everyone Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fear. Enjoy, and please join us next time for an interview with Sherry Rosenblatt, a longtime friend and an expert in communicating about issues associated with food. Original theme music by Jim Cirillo whose work can be found at jimiumgroup.com, that's J-I-M-I-U-M group.com, original art by C.C. Snetzinger, and you can follow us now at hashtag WTSWTGT, those are the initials for what to say when things get tough, hashtag WTSWTGT, and please subscribe to, rate, and review this podcast. Until next time, always be positive. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.